as you guys know, we've been walking through the book of James verse by verse. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in chapter two in the section uh, that's entitled in a lot of our Bibles, Faith Without Works is Dead. Um, it's a passage that James is challenging us because if we have faith in Christ, it ought to change the way that we live. It ought to not only deliver us from the power of sin practically in our lives, but also lead us into the good plans that God preordained for us to walk in. God has good plans for your lives and for all of our lives. And, and without him and without his grace, without his goodness, we wouldn't be empowered to do any of it. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is not only did God give his son to pay for our sins, but he gave us his spirit so that we could walk in the things that we could never carry out in our own strength. He gave us his strength by sealing us with his spirit and empowering us through that same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Um, so this morning, we're going to talk about faith and works and how to have a vital faith. Um, so uh, I want to give us a real quick recap of last week because it's all part of the same section. Um, so in general, James is the half-brother of Jesus writing to a church who is being persecuted. They've been scattered from the church in Jerusalem under uh, James was the pastor of that church. And now he's writing this letter to people who are in his congregation because he wants to challenge them and build them up in their faith and encourage them as they're walking through things. Anyone ever walk through a season of trial and you needed help from God, you needed instruction, you needed wisdom? James is writing that to us here. And so as we read this this morning, um, James is specifically talking about in trials, a lot of times our faith can go co grow cold. You guys ever experienced like you're walking with the Lord, you feel like you're growing in your faith and then storms hit your life and it feels like you're going backwards now. Like, like your, your faith just can't keep going up because trials are hitting your life. It's like, well, I I'm doing my best. <laughs> and trials keep hitting my life, um, James knows that these people are struggling and he writes to them because he wants them to know that not only does faith, it should produce works, but works also vitalize our faith. They also bring energy to our faith. You guys ever been like, man, I just do not feel like doing what I know I should do. And then you finally do it, and then you suddenly have this energy like, oh, yeah, I should have been doing that the whole time. Yeah? Um, I definitely do. It's like laundry for me. I'll clean the whole house, but I'll leave the laundry for care. No, I'm just kidding. I'll try to do it anyway, because that's loving if I... Anyway, that's unrelated. But, um, so last week, we talked about uh, verses 14 through 17, and as we walk through this passage, we see that James um, opens up with this, a couple of questions in verse 14, where he says, what good is it? My brothers, if you say you have faith, but you do not have works, can that faith save you? So James is asking these two practical questions, but the question he's asking really is what is the profit of doing or of saying you have faith, but if you're not going to live in obedience to what you believe? Um, I won't re-preach that sermon, but if I were to recap that section, um, God saved our spirits when we trusted in him at, at the cross, when we put our faith in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. That was our salvation. Nothing we could ever do. We could earn God's favor, could earn God's love. It was freely given to us at the cross and we put our faith in that. We rest in it. 
and we are 100% new. Behold, all things are new. After all the old thing has all the old things have gone. Behold, all things have become new. Um, as a person who lives at, uh, in Christ, so all of us, if if you've put your faith in Jesus, I want to use these two terms to kind of illustrate it: uh, position and condition. If you're in Christ, your position is seated with Him in heavenly places, like we read in Ephesians chapter one. God, God is so serious about who you are that he says it's as good as if you're sitting right next to me in heaven right now. Present tense. That's your position. That's who you are. But our condition in this world doesn't always line up with who we are. The temptation for us as believers is to focus a lot on our condition. Improve my condition. Do better. Try harder. Get through that struggle. Get through that phase. But the more we focus on our condition, the further our eyes are away from Jesus. But a greater emphasis on our position in Christ and who we are in Christ will give us the strength to abide in Jesus and him produces work and his fruit in our lives. Um, So James isn't writing as he's writing this passage about faith without works is dead. He's not writing about how to have a position in Christ. Rather, he's talking about our condition in Christ as believers should be shaped by the faith that we have in him. Um, so recap, God is interested in more than saving your spirit for eternity. He actually has a plan of salvation for every area of our lives. We talked about the judgment seat of Christ um, in uh, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, uh, at, before our passage, and then after our passage, chapter 3, verse 1, both deal with the judgment seat of Christ, which is where believers... Uh, will give an account of their works to God, um, not, to pre- to, not to get into heaven or hell, um, but what is useful to him is going to be preserved forever, saved forever. Um, but what we've done selfishly with the life that he's given us and what we've done um, not for the Lord will be burned up never to be useful for anything again. So that's the bookends to the section. Um, and I point that out to say that James is talking not about, uh, are we going to be judged at the great white throne judgment, which has to do with unbelievers will be judged there and they'll be cast in the lake of fire. Um, But believers will be standing before God, giving an account of their works also, but not to determine where they spend eternity, but how. Um, Not not that there's going to be any insignificant place in heaven. I'm not saying that. But there are things that we can accrue in this life and in the life to come if they're done for God's purposes and for his kingdom. So James is writing to us so that we can understand not only is your spirit saved for eternity when you put your faith in Jesus, but if you'll continue to walk in faith and experience the fruit of his spirit lived out in your life and you're going to walk in the good things that he's prepared for you, um, then he has a plan of salvation for every aspect of your life. Let me make it even more practical couple areas, uh, just give you a couple examples of what that might look like. Um, Is there an area in your life right now that you've refused to change in because you say that's just who I am, but you know it doesn't line up with biblical truth? You've made the conscious decision, well, maybe unconscious, maybe you didn't think about it this way, but there's areas of my life I'm like, God, show me, because I know I have areas like that. We've made the decision that we're going to use that for ourselves and it'll never be useful for eternity. 
it, it won't result in honor, praise, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so that's um, an example. Um, we'll, we'll talk about more examples as we go along, but that, that's the context. So I pointed out last week that James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And uh, I talked about so speak and so act is what he writes about for the next at least chapter and a half uh, is our speech and our actions because he's interested in seeing believers develop in their faith. He's not showing us how to have faith to be born again, but how to develop in our faith, to be growing up in our faith. That's what James is writing about. So um, I want to read the passage for us from verse 14 through 26 again. Uh, If you guys will follow along carefully with me, um, we'll pray and then we'll dive into this word. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Um, will you guys join with me in praying that God would help us to understand this, but not just for the knowledge of it, so that we can actually apply it to our lives. We don't want to just know things and hear things and become puffed up in knowledge. We want to apply it to our lives so that we can be pleasing to God. We want, we want to grow and mature in our faith, and that's what James is teaching us here. So let's pray that God will do that in this time that we're together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the time that we've gotten to just worship your name. As Pastor Ethan said, we we exist to exalt you, Jesus. We're going to lift up you, Holy Spirit. We're going to lift you up, Father. We're going to always live to, to sing your praise, to tell the world around us how great you are, how good you are, how loving and gracious you are, God. Lord, I pray um, that you would develop all of us in this room to become more and more like you, Jesus. Um, The world is hurting and broken and lost, and they need hope. And they should be able to find it with us uh, because we have hope. But sometimes they don't see hope in our lives because our faith isn't alive and it's not vibrant. So God, I pray that you would change us, that you would transform us, God, I pray that we wouldn't just believe in you, but God, that that would transform every area of our lives. 
Continue to mold us, God. Make us more into your image. We love you. We pray these things in your precious and powerful name. Amen. Um, author and marriage counselor, Gary Chapman. Who's heard of that guy? A lot of you. You guys have done the, the five love languages test thing, right? Kara says they're sick. She says coffee should be on that list. But uh, um, yeah, so he, he uh, yeah, he's a marriage counselor and an author. And he wrote um, about, he suggested that husband and wives have five general ways in which they perceive love from their partner. So here's the five. Uh, first is words of affection or affirmation. Uh, two is quality time. Three, receiving gifts. Four, acts of service. Five, physical touch. Uh, this has nothing to do with the, with the service, but I want to just see who, who has what. Um, if you think that your primary love language, the way you feel loved, is words of affection, raise your hand. Okay. Quality time. Look around at the people next to you that you know really well, because then you can start <laughs> loving them in a, a more meaningful way. Uh, okay. Uh, receiving gifts. Some, some of you are just raising your hand for all of them. No, I'm just kidding. Um, acts of service. Okay, physical touch. <laughs> yeah, and all the men in the room raise their hand. I'm um, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> that's hilarious. Okay, I feel like 20% of you responded to one of the five, so the rest of you just don't have a love language. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I, uh, Kara's, uh, she loves quality time. But the way I like to show gifts, not receive uh, love, but show love is to, to give gifts. I love giving gifts and, and making things and doing things like that, which she appreciates for sure. And she's so thankful for it. But it's not her primary way of feeling loved. Um, I remember, I don't even know how to sp- point out a specific time because there's been so many times where um, we have like a special occasion and I want to do something elaborate or nice for it. And I'll just take so much time doing that, that we don't actually get to spend time together. <laughs> She's like, that's great, but we didn't even get to hang out at all. Like, you spend all your time in there making it, and it's janky, and it's not even that cool. Yeah, you know, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. She didn't say that. She's really, she's really sweet, even though that is true. They're, it's usually not as good as I hope. But uh, anyway, I, I would suggest this morning, you guys are like, why are you even talking about love? It doesn't say that in the passage. Um, I would suggest as I've heard, I I didn't make this up, but that God's love language is obedience. That's how he feels loved. And and I can prove it to you uh, from the word. It says in in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The way that we show and express our love to God is through our obedience, through hearing his his voice and applying what we've heard. Um, even though the passage we just read doesn't say the word love, I want to point us back to show a little context. I don't think I have all these verses up here, but a couple weeks ago, Pastor Ethan talked about, the, uh, actually, Pastor Ryan and Pastor Ethan talked about the royal law. There's a little bit of overlap, but the, uh, the royal law is um, found in chapter 2, verse 8 of James, and it says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But then he contrasts that with partiality. We're either loving people well, like God desires us to do, loving people like we'd want to be loved, or um, we're showing partiality to each other and it's a competition. We're either selflessly loving people 
or we're uh, competing for love. Well, well, I'll love you as long as you don't pass me, and then I'm going to hold a grudge against you, you know. Um, we love for people to get by. We just don't want them to get by us, you know. But uh, love, uh, in this context, I kind of want to point how that really shapes even, I said how so speak and so act is what James is going to spend his time talking about, right? But that so speak and so act has to do with that royal law, um, has to do with love. That, that our actions and our speech should be expressions of our love. So if we want, what does, um, I, I was like wrestling with this. I was like, what, is, what are the specific works that James is talking about here? And I used to be really scared of it because I was like, man, if I have to do these works to be saved, to like go to heaven, I better know what they are and do a good enough job at it <laughs> or I won't make it, you know? Um, but I was like, what are the works uh, in this passage? Um, I think that the works are expressions of our love through faith. Galatians chapter five, verse six says that circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love or working itself out in love in some translations. That's what counts in the Christian life. It is not just faith and it's not just doing more things or, or abiding by the law. It's faith working through love. So I think that's what James is teaching us here in our speech and our actions. We're expressing our love, um, which by the way, only comes by his spirit. That's not the primary focus of what he's saying here. This is one side, one aspect of faith or faith and works. He's not really saying, he's not describing the works themselves so much. Uh, he does, he gives examples. Um, he's also not talking about where the strength comes from uh, primarily either. Really, he's just trying to point out Faith without works is dead. It's useless. That, that's his point in writing this, this portion that we're in. Um, but I, I just want us to walk through this carefully, um, this passage. I'm, I'm, we're going to break it down like this. Uh, we're going to take verse 18 um, through 20. There's an objection to what James said in verse 17. He says, so faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. In verse 18 and 19, we see an objection to that. And then James responds in verse 20 and then gives two examples of why faith without works actually is dead um, in a man named Abraham and a woman named Rahab. And then he closes out with one last illustration in verse 26. So we're going to walk through each of those. Um, I want you guys to know that there'll be some application throughout, but I've saved uh, three things that I, I think we see in the text to talk about at the end and in conclusion. Um, so right now, let's walk through the text. And um, this very first part is probably the most technical of the entire passage, um, but I gotta go in order with what the word says. So um, hang in with me uh, for a second, real quickly. Um, I'm gonna read verse 18 and 19, and then we'll talk about it. But it says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So in verse 18 and 19, I, I discovered as I was studying that quotation marks are not used in Greek. Um, in fact, we, we add them where we assume they should fit. And even within different translations, the, the quotations end in different places. It's pretty clear when they begin because James says, but someone will say, right, okay, Here's the first quotation. Um, but where that ends is confusing. 
Um, not because God is confusing, but because we, we just have a hard time wrapping our minds around what, what, what he means. So um, he says, you have faith and I have works. If you'll just logically follow along with me of who you and I are, I think you'll see that, that the same person is talking through verse 19. All right, let's see if we can see it here. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You guys see that? You and I, back and forth. Well, um, there's a couple of texts that we won't take the time to, uh, to reference because it's a minor point, but just if you guys are like, I don't know if I believe that. Um, here's a couple of things you can write down on your notepad or your iPhone or whatever you got. Um, Romans 9, 19 through 20 and 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 36. Again, that's Romans 9, 19 through 20, and 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 36. There is uh, examples of how um, in Greek, we can understand where the quotations end and begin. And usually it's obvious where they begin, but the ending is always, sometimes can be foggy. Um, But in Greek, because they didn't have quotation marks, the way that they told their readers where they were ending it was usually by using a pretty emphatic expression. And I think we see that in verse 20, um, which also helps support that. Uh, It says in verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You guys see that? Um, So you guys are like, okay, what's the point of all of this? Well, let's let's hear what is the person objecting? What, What is their objection that they're making when James is like, guys, faith without works is dead. And somebody's like, someone's going to say something against that. What, what is the objection and why does it matter? So let's uh, read it one more time and then talk about it for a second here. Verse 18, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It seems confusing because it almost seems like the person who's objecting is saying that they do the works anyway. Do you guys see that? Am I, am I keeping you all? Is that making sense? Okay. Um, so the person objecting, you know, I, like people, actually most commentaries I was reading, they just kind of skipped over how the person, the first thing they say is, you have faith and I have works. Because they're always like, oh, it just, they're just saying that they don't want to do the works. I'm like, maybe so, but I don't see that. I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing that. Um, so I, I'm not going to lie about half my study time was wrapped up in me being like, God, please help me to understand this. Um, I was getting so lost. Um, but I don't think, I do think um, that this makes the most logical sense in the context. And I, I hope you guys can see it and it'll make crystal clear sense to all of us. Um, but the objection isn't him taking one side or the other. The objector, the person saying, no, faith without works is not dead, is someone who's stagnant in their faith. We believe a believer from the context is objecting like, because they don't want to change anything about their life. But in verse 18 and 19, what their objection is, is not who has works and who has faith as much. He's using himself as an example or herself. An ex- they're they're a, fic- a fictional character. It doesn't matter who they, who they are. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, but their primary emphasis in st- saying what they said in verse 18 and 19 is to say that there's no necessary connection between faith and works, whichever way you look at that. Um, let's look at it. I'll, I'll point that out to us. 
you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Okay, so can you show me what you believe without doing something? Can you demonstrate that? He's like, okay, there's not always a connection there between what we believe and what we do, right? And they said, okay, let me, let's try another one. Um, I'll show you my faith by my works. Well, that one's tough too, isn't it? Because there's a lot of people that do good works that believe a lot of different things. So I think that the objector is trying to point out, hey, um, I know you want me to do works to, to have living faith, but really there's not much of a connection between faith and works anyway. You guys see that? Um, but in verse 20, James, even though I don't think he would refuse the fact that there can be disagreement between our faith and our works, I don't think that's what he's saying. Um, if we're all honest, we all believe things we don't do, right? We don't always live in accordance with what we do. I, it's just a little pet peeve. Can I say it really fast? I've heard a lot of sermons <laughs> where it seemed like the person was telling me that if you're a believer, you're going to do everything you believe. And I was sitting there like, wow, I guess I don't have a real salvation because that's not me. If I'm honest with myself, or sometimes I felt good enough about myself that I was like, yeah, you know what? I think I am doing well enough. Like, um, that's the problem with that kind of approach is that we're either conceited or uh, we're broken because we never know whether or not we're doing good enough. Um, but what James says in verse 20, he reels it back in and is like, even though there's not always uh, a connection perfectly between the two, there should be a powerful, dynamic uh, combination between faith and works that vitalizes our faith and that displays his character to the world. That's what he says in verse 20, and he's going to give two examples in Abraham and Rahab. I know this is really teaching this morning. I hope that's okay with everyone. Um, Abraham and Rahab, we're going to see those examples, and then we'll close out with an illustration and some application. Um, so uh, let me figure out where we're at. Verse 20, let's look at what James says. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So he's doubling down on what he said before. He's like, no, it's not. The objector saying faith without works is not dead because they're not really connected. He's like, okay, it is useless if you have faith, but you don't have works. And I'm going to prove it to you. Um, again, useless, not for eternity, where you go, heaven or hell, but useless in the Christian life if we want to glory and honor, glorify and honor our king. Um, so he goes into the example of Abraham in uh, verse 21. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. You see how he kind of refutes the claim that was made by the objector. You guys following that? He says, faith was active along with his works. So that's one side of it. And they said, and faith was completed by his works. So he answers both of those, negates both of those things that the objector said. Um, so uh, where are we at? Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And then it says in verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that's, uh, that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him uh, as righteousness. Um, this story of Abraham is, is a significant biblical story. Um, it's actually seen as by, by multiple world religions as the single greatest act of obedience of anyone of all time. 
Abraham being called by God to sacrifice his one and only son, who, by the way, was promised years before um, when they were in their old age, they conceived and had a child miraculously by the power of God to fulfill the purpose of uh, really leading to the nation of Israel, which would reach the world with the gospel through um, Jesus would come through the line of Israel and come bring salvation to everyone. So there's a huge plan that God gives to Abraham. He says, see if you can number the stars. See if you can just go outside and number those. Your descendants will be more than that. And they're old and they don't have a child. They're barren. And God gives them a son, Isaac, in their old age. They, they received the promise, uh, I think, around 25 years before they actually had the child. So if their faith was dim in their 70s, when they got reached about 100, you can imagine that was a little bit difficult for them to believe that God was still going to follow through on his promise, um, which just shows how awesome God is. Um, but this child the one that they waited 25 years for, the one that they were um, not sure if they could really believe God. And um, if we can kind of paint Abraham in both lights, positive and negative, if we can be honest, a lot of times we hear this passage and we're like, see, Abraham, Abraham believed God and he always followed obediently the rest of his life. It's like, you guys remember like Hagar and Ishmael and all that? No? Is that, is that just me that read that part? I don't know. Um, that, that goes to prove, really, that faith doesn't always produce good works, right? He literally did not believe the promise of God in that moment where he was like, okay, I'll change your promise a little bit. And uh, Sarah was like, sleep with my concubine. I'm just, that's what it says. Um, and uh, they conceived, and then they were like, okay, we'll just use, uh, this child will be the one who God has promised. And God's like, no, it won't be. And actually, by the way, there's lasting consequences even to this day because of that relationship and everything going on over in Israel and all the hostility, um, there are profound consequences to this man of faith that we're looking up to this morning. I'm making that point not just as a side note, but so that we can all be encouraged to know that just because there's been seasons of your life that your faith has been dead does not mean that God's not going to want to use you in a powerful way. He has good plans for us. And your biggest mistake, no matter how fatal the consequences, in this case, it was literally death has been riddled all over that genealogy. Um, for us, it may be a bad mistake that, that, that really hurt uh, those we love. And we may begin to feel like God doesn't still want to use me and your faith begins to get cold and stagnant. But God has good plans for your life and he wants to use you and he's not giving up on you. So we see that in Abraham's life. But um, here in the, in the passage that, that James is referencing, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That is a confusing verse, uh, especially if you've read Romans chapter 4, uh, Galatians, um, really just a lot of places that says justification is by grace through faith, not by works. In fact, they're emphatic in the other text, not of works, um, lest any man should boast. So uh, I want to tell you guys what the definition of justification is. It's to be declared righteous. It's not that we're accounted as righteous, it's we're declared righteous. Does that make sense? Someone says of you that that's righteous. Um, 
there's two types of justification, and one's before God, and one's before men. Um, we were declared righteous by God the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We received eternal life, and he said, you are my child, you are righteous. I take away your sin through Jesus, and I give you his life, and that's the imputed righteousness of Jesus, his goodness on our account. That's justification before God. And it's done in the courtroom of heaven, um, which is awesome because it's already been decided. Our justification is secure in Christ. But um, justification before men, we'll actually see that they were declared righteous by others in their obedience. Um, So that's what James is going to point out is that really um, also just to further, if you're like not sure, like really can we use justification in more than one way? It says that Jesus was justified. Most translations uh, translated as vindicated in uh, 1 Timothy, where it says that he was um, vindicated by the Spirit, uh, seen among men and, and taken up in glory, and that whole passage right there. Um, that same word is for justify. It's the same Greek word. Um, obviously, he, wasn't, he didn't have his sin removed and imputed righteousness. He, he is righteous. He is God. Um, but he was vindicated uh, by the Spirit in his earthly life, people could see, they could declare that he is righteous. And the Spirit said that of him, um, this is my beloved son. You know, or the Father said that and the Spirit descended and bore witness to that. Um, sorry, I'm a little, little uh, all over the place, but we'll, we'll wrap it back up. So here in this passage, I won't take the time to read. It's Genesis chapter 22, if you want to go home and read that whole passage. But yeah, God, God calls Abraham to slaughter his son as a sacrifice. And um, I'm just going to read the first three verses uh, with us here. Genesis 22, 1 through 3. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. You see immediate obedience from Abraham. With the text, if you read the whole thing, it does not tell us how Abraham was feeling, but I think that's implied especially if you're a parent in the room. You, you can't imagine what it would be like to be told by God to do this. Here, here's a couple of interesting things about this passage uh, that might even shed more light on what James is saying. Um, one, the law that came after this uh, strictly prohibits child sacrifice. So we know that's not in God's heart. And it was never God's intention to actually have him kill Isaac. God also is all-knowing, so he knew that Abraham had faith, right? So what was the purpose in this test that God had? Um, I'll leave you hanging on that one for a second. We'll come back to that. But God had a purpose in testing him here. Um, So back to James. James chapter 2, verse uh, 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Um, If that's what it takes to have our sins washed away and receive the righteousness of Christ is that kind of obedience, I, I would be terrified probably the rest of my life that I would not do a good enough job. Um, 
22, it says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So he's saying faith and works are a powerful combination when they work together like that. Um, he says, faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. It was showing that he truly had faith in God. He, the only reason, and we actually see more insight into this in Hebrews, and it says that Abraham uh, believed that it was even possible that God would raise, I'm sorry, I think that's in Romans actually, in Romans, um, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He even had faith believing that. I was like, okay, Lord, I'll obey you, but um, I guess that means like you're going to stay with your promise. I guess that means that you're going to resurrect him. That was his thought because we know that Abraham went as far as even taking the knife ready to uh, kill his son on the altar. He, ha he already had him tied on the wood on the altar, um, which is, a, is an amazing story. I'm not trying to take away from it, but can you imagine how awkward that would have been when the son, they're walking up and they're like, uh, father, he's like, behold, the, the wood for the sacrifice and this. He's like, but where's, but where's the sacrifice? It's like, um, the Lord will provide, son. The Lord will provide. It's like, oh, man, that's so, that would have been an awkward place to be. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he's like, but now you're tying me to it. But um, anyway, I don't know I'm saying that. But, uh, but Abraham's faith was so strong that he was going to follow through with it. That's the point. He literally had the knife in his hand. And he was ready to obey God, even to this extent. So faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that, that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that verse is found in Genesis 15, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And it was about the promise of God. Um, Abraham believed the promise that he was gonna give him a son and that through him all the nations would be blessed. And his faith in Jesus, or in, in God, but also Jesus, um, his faith there is what God said. Um, he, he counts that as righteousness. So that was years before this account here where he's uh, tested in his faith to sacrifice his son. Um, but it says that the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was kind to him. The, the difference is not that um, that's when he was justified. He was already declared righteous. Y'all follow me? Abraham was declared righteous long before this, but the scripture was fulfilled. It, it gave evidence to the fact that he was justified. It gave evidence to his faith, a living faith that was active, that was vibrant, that was healthy, that could be seen by the world around him. Uh, makes me think of Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. We don't do works for the praise of man, but we do do works around people so that they can see the character of God and give him glory. Um, it's all about him. And Abraham displayed such an act of faith in his works that the world around him could say, wow, that man, it says that he was called a friend of God. Um, we'll talk about that again in closing. Um, but then Ab uh, let's look back at verse, um, and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, it says, you see that this is James commenting again. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Did the whole justification before God and before man make sense to everyone? Declared righteous in, in the eyes of God and then in the eyes of people. Um, so he says, it was not just by faith, but by works because God sees the root, but man can only see the fruit. Does that make sense? 
Which, by the way, church, I know this is unrelated. I, I, another like pet peeve, I guess, I don't know. But uh, I, for some reason, I think a lot of Christians think that their primary God-given job is to be a fruit inspector of other believers to see if they're doing a good enough job. Um, but he already addressed that in James. He said, hey, uh, no, that's not what we exist for. That's partiality. <laughs> and you guys are judging yourselves, but you're not looking inwardly. And in this inward look, that's the section we're in now. How is your faith? Is it active? Is it living? Is it healthy? Is it producing good works? That's what James is, is getting at. So then he uses the example of Rahab, um, which you could not find a more different person between Abraham and Rahab. One, Abraham was the father uh, of Israel and the father of, the, of faith, right? Um, Rahab was a prostitute that was not, uh, that was living in Jericho, um, so totally different lives, totally different cultures, totally different everything. But um, James includes her as an example of uh, a living faith, an active faith. It says uh, in verse 25, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. You guys know that story in Joshua chapter 2? where uh, Joshua sends the spies into Jericho and uh, Rahab uh, they, receives these two spies into her house. Um, and they are, it's told to the king that they're spies that have been sent from Israel. And she could have, if you guys think about this, she could have probably turned them in and had been set for life in Jericho. Like, wow, like you're so loyal to us. We will honor that. She probably could have received some reward from that. But instead, she said, I've heard of your God. I know who, I've, I've heard the stories of what he's done, how he's um, conquered um, all these other peoples and all these different things that God has done. And so she expressed her faith. What's interesting is that the text says, not only when she received the messengers, but when she sent them out by another way, because when she received them, God knew the root she had faith. When she actually hid them and sent them out by another way, people could declare her righteous because they could see the fruit of it because she didn't give them up to be captives. Does that make sense? So Rahab exemplifies um, an active living faith. I, I wonder this morning, is our faith living? Is your faith alive in the way that you treat your family? Or in the way that you live at school, students? Or in your workplace? In the jokes that you make? In the conversations you have? And it's not just sin. Is it, is it active? Is it working in the way that you serve? Um, whether it be in the church or anywhere you go, are you doing all things to give glory to God with, with, and do everything with all your might? Are you doing things... and, and I guess I, you can tell, if you haven't told by my teaching style, I tend to lean on the grace side. I want to be full of grace and truth. James is hitting on a lot of truth here. Um, we also, we, I never want us to confuse our work with our identity. That's, that cannot happen for us. We have to know who we are in Christ, and as a result of that, we do work for the Lord out of a thank you life, not out of a, a have to life. Does that make sense? So that, but that's not what James is saying here. James is saying to people who are carnal or stagnant in their faith, hey guys, let's 
take it up a notch. Uh, let's live this faith out. Let's do something about what we believe in Christ that can demonstrate to the world around us that God is, um, God is living, that God loves them. Um, he gives one more example in verse 26. And we're about to close out, y'all. But it says in verse 26, it says, For as, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Um, the body represents faith and the spirit represents uh, works, which almost seemed like it'd be flipped. But um, the point he's making here is faith apart from works is dead. Works bring uh, life to our faith. Maybe you're in the, uh, the room this morning and, and you've been in a season where your, your faith has felt stagnant, it's felt cold, you just like don't feel like actually doing anything for the Lord even though what we do should be do out of love and a desire to do it, sometimes we just don't feel like it. And, and these believers, I believe the context, the reason he's even writing this and that these believers are experiencing this is that these are a group of people who have been through so much that they struggle to continue to live for Jesus. They, yeah, they believed in him, but I don't know if I can keep doing this. <laughs> I've been serving you and crap just keeps happening in my life, you know? <laughs> can, I, can I trust you? Can I really trust you? Can I really step out and live like you've called me to live? And James is saying, yes, <laughs> he's trustworthy, he's good. And he's telling them that this work, if you'll just step into it, your faith will be picked up your faith will become vibrant again. Sometimes we need enough faith to do something. Sometimes we have faith and we just need to do something so that faith can live again. It's like, it's like we're, <laughs> um, what's, I don't even know the word. When you're putting someone back to life, what, what's it called? I'm blank. CPR, thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's like everyone in the room knows except for me right now. Um, <laughs> works are like CPR on faith sometimes. Let me give you three quick things, okay? You guys ready? Three things to close. Works animate our faith. That's what we were just talking about. They make them useful. That makes our faith useful. Works demonstrate our love. We talked about God's love language is obedience. It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. He didn't say, keep my commands and I'll love you. He said, if you love me, express it through your works. Our works demonstrate the fact that we love God and we love people. And a lot of times the way that we serve God is by serving people. That's all here in the context. It's all about the way that we treat the people around us. So works animate our faith, works demonstrate our love, and works increase our intimacy with the Lord. They increase our intimacy with the Lord. And here, here let, me, let me show you what I mean by that. I told you I'd come back to it when, why did God test Abraham? What was the point of that? If he knew that he already had faith, and um, then why did he have to take him through this whole huge test outside of other people seeing that, you know, he uh, would obey and all of that? Um, it says that he was called a friend of God. Jesus said that if you obey me, you are my friends. If you keep what I command you, you're my friends. 
Did you know you can be saved but not living as a friend of God? It's talking about fellowship, closeness, not talking about a relationship, condition, not position, right? When we live like we really believe what we do about Christ and it shapes the way that we interact with people, the way we love people, we grow more deeply and more intimately in that relationship with our Father. It's so powerful, it's so vibrant, and and it's so cool because God knew that that was a huge trial. And sometimes trials, (laughs) I think someone needs in, in the room to hear this this morning, sometimes trials are God's invitation to a greater place of intimacy with Him. Sometimes the trial in your life, God has allowed you the opportunity to display your faith through your work. And if you'll do that, you'll feel a greater embrace of his love. Not that he'll love you more or less, but you'll experience more of his love because you're abiding in him. Let's pray. And uh, if uh, any of you need prayer or anything like that, we'll stick around. But uh, other than that, we'll actually, yeah, yeah, we'll pray and we'll dismiss. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for your goodness in our lives. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you challenge us. God, I pray that we would be a church that we're not content to come in every week and just hear your word, but we want to be doers of it. God, we want to have living, active faith that glorifies you, that shows your character to the world around us, and that drives us into a deeper and greater uh, place of fellowship with you, Jesus. We love you. I pray that you would bless people in this room, people who are walking through trials. I pray that you comfort them. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would wrap them up in your arms, that you'd remind them of who they are in you and how much you love them. It's so easy for us to question your goodness in a season of trial, but God, you're good. We believe that. We confess that. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to work throughout this week. God, that as we walk away from this, can we be honest with ourselves? Can we look inwardly? And can we be challenged by what you had James right. And I pray that you would give us the strength by your spirit for it to transform the way we live. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.